0: petersfield's shine radio
1: this is talking books presented by Susie wild
2: and tim o'kelly
0: hello i'm Susie wild
2: and i'm tim o'kelly of one tree books
0: and our guest this month is the accidental detectorist by nigel richardson who will be uncovering his underground obsession
2: but so let's begin as usual with what you've been reading this month Susie.
0: Well, um, the course that I mentioned last month with Marion Keys has started. So I've been reading, there was a long list of romance. So I've been keeping up with that. But funnily enough... The one by her, her latest Grown Ups, I've really enjoyed. And it's also about the Kinsellas. And I thought, hang on a minute, I've just been reading about that, haven't I? So the Kinsellas um, occur in many of the Irish books I've been reading recently, which is interesting. Um, But also I'll just mention, because I know so many listeners um, enjoy Jojo Moyes. And so many people who perhaps never read but saw the film Me Before You absolutely adored it. And Jojo jo Moyes received so many tweets and emails, even after the film, every day asking about what her main character, Lou Clark, did with her life. So she wrote the sequel. And In fact, I note there's one called Still Me, I think. So it's now a trilogy. Um, so I've been catching up with that but also Hearts and Headstones by Ian Rankin which um, if anyone's been following Rebus through his entire career I I think he's back on form with it I haven't finished it in fact I've only just started it really Um, but Cafferty's in it um, and it's old crimes and Rebus has COPD chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder his life catching up with him but it makes me slightly anxious I mention that because of hearts and headstones You think oh no 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 please don't let Rebus die but you know well mm, we'll see
2: we'll wait and see so how about you well I've been haven't read as much this month as I usually do I think I've been a bit this time of year I get to I get very busy in the shop here but I I enjoyed um, Lily by Rose Tremaine um, which is a sort of Victorian melodrama and the great thing about Rose Tremaine is she always writes. A different book every time she writes. She writes something. She never. She never hammers the same theme, um, which is great. But this is. It's you know. Lily is an abandoned orphan found as a tiny baby by a young policeman, and he's taken. She's taken to Corum Fields, which is where they where the or- big orphanage was. But the, what they used to do with them is they used to, uh, for the first six years of their life, they were kind of farmed out to, um, literally to, to farmers, um, in, in the country somewhere where they were sort of fostered until they were six and able to start working um so then they came back to the orphanage and they were sewing or doing something that that uh uh, that they could do at that young age that's part of the story but that's sort of the backstory the the book starts with um lily our our heroine as a, as a, a wig maker but she's got a terrible secret so we're gonna we're get, we sort of learn about the secret we learn about her past and and what sort
0: and of age is she when she's a wig maker
2: she is sixteen
0: seventeen right okay sounds good
2: so uh yeah so that's a that's that, that was the that I enjoyed that um Lucy by the sea by Elizabeth trout uh, now she did um my name is Lucy Barton and olive and this is a kind of in a sequence of, of books which feature Lucy Barton um Oh, William was another one, but this has just been shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and it's set in the pandemic. Uh, as I think more, and more <laughs> yeah. quite a few novels are becoming starting to creep out uh, that have pandemic features in them. Uh, where she leaves New York to to live with her ex husband, who comes come, sort of collects her and, and whisks her out of the city uh, to to Maine in New England because because New York was really badly hit in the mm-hmm. pandemic and such a, such a high volume of people living in such a small small island uh, in Manhattan that they had this terrible, um, terrible illness there. But anyway, so she, she lives in... She comes out and uh, it's... Not much happens in this book, but she does write really well, I think. I really enjoyed it. So that's Lucy by the Sea. And the last one, and the book I'm still reading at the moment, is Ugly Love by... Colleen Hoover. oh I
0: haven't heard anything about her. You
2: may not have heard of Colleen Hoover, but she is the 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 huge biggest bestseller in America and one of the biggest bestsellers over here as well. If you ever look in the in the Sunday Times bestseller list every week, you will find at least three of her books in the top ten. Because they allow
0: romance now. Well, it's
2: it's it's just that they're she's a she's extraordinary writer. She great history a great story behind her she was she's she grew up in a in a trailer park in a really impoverished part of texas um and she started writing these writing these stories and um she was very good at at promoting the stories. she's published them herself and uh they're, they're they're romantic stories and they're young adult fiction so they're aimed at at Teens and and twenty or twenty people in their twenties really, or younger people anyway, uh, and mainly women. And um, anyway, she became a sort of TikTok sensation in in Aww. the in during lockdown and just after lockdown. And I gather that last year, uh, the, sort of the New York Times bestseller list, six out of ten were her books, which is extraordinary, really. Anyway, so I thought I'd be, I thought I ought to read read one. Mm. Um, because they're becoming they're becoming bigger and bigger over here at the moment. So there's a real it's a real huge thing. Um to be fair, to be honest, it's not, You're really, not her target I'm audience. I'm not her target audience. <laughs> and it is not really my cup of tea. Uh they they they're there's a certain style to them which isn't isn't I don't particularly get on with. Uh they're pretty raunchy stories as well. I, I was quite, I was quite surprised, um, <laughs> but I'm going to finish it, and I and I am enjoying it in a, in a way. Is it uh, first
0: person present tense? Uh,
2: this one is set in two two time periods oh, really, okay. um, but first person is is one of the stories, and the, the other story is set in the in the third person, okay. um, six years earlier. Nice. So uh, it's no, I'm I'm enjoying it, and I shall finish it.
0: we're lucky enough to be joined today by nigel richardson travel writer novelist and journalist he was deputy travel editor of the daily telegraph for 13 years until very recently he writes about places culture history and wildlife conservation and has won numerous awards and commendations including uk travel journalist of the year sunday times book of the week etc etc but comes across as a really good bloke with a self-deprecating wit in his writing we will find out whether this is true Um, he's also a big fan of dogs and wolves Oh,
2: well, Adley more, the than Hampton Wanderers. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Nigel, tell us how you got hooked in the first place. Um, well, I think the, the title
1: of the book kind of explains how I got into metal detecting. Uh, it, it was an accident, and the accident was COVID, was the enforced lockdowns that uh, resulted from COVID. And uh, as a travel writer, COVID was a bit of a problem because... I couldn't travel suddenly. What to do? Um, That's where I got the idea to maybe travel in time, which metal detecting would enable me to do, but also travel in my own backyard because I live in Hampshire, live in an old house in Hampshire, lots of history around the house, lots of history in Hampshire, lots of metal detectorists in Hampshire. And I put all these things together and I decided that it might be a fruitful thing to take up. It started off as a hobby very quickly I realised that it was much more interesting had much more had hidden depths if you like as a as a subject matter and as a a pastime to pursue and slowly I began to realise that perhaps also in addition to
2: giving me something fascinating to do at weekends and so on there could be a book in it. Fantastic Um, well it's a really it's a really interesting and entertaining read and I think one of the most interesting things about in the book is the idea that you're the we're, it's a way of connecting with our history with with actually really engaging with history in the sense that um, we don't really do the rest of our lives we don't and actually
1: detectorists find objects and touch objects hold objects contemplate objects um, in a very privileged way that no one else does bar museum professionals if you think about it only museum professionals curators and so on archaeologists actually get to touch these tokens of the past. And it's a very special moment when you find something old. You dig it. You, you, you dig up an object, you realise it's interesting. It's not a bit of old drinks can or a ring pull or a, a nail or something. It's actually something really interesting. And you touch it and there's a kind of jolt of energy and recognition that goes on when you hold that object. That's very special. And each object tells a story. You might not be able to read the story immediately, you might have to do your research to discover exactly what the story is but nevertheless um, they're all little mysteries that gradually reveal themselves as you do the research on them. Yeah. You're
0: almost there at the, at the rebirth, aren't you? Which even the museums are not it's tended to be cleaned up and so on but you're there and it's inchoate state. Yes,
1: the rebirth it's, that's exactly right, so one of the first things that I was told by other detectorists is that there is this real Uh, kind of dopamine rush when you touch this object hold this object for the first time in however many hundred years or it could be actually thousand years or even two thousand years and that is very you you feel very privileged to be doing this and of course you then think well who did it belong to before me because now it belongs to me or it might belong to the nation also if it's a piece of treasure and it has to be reported in the appropriate way but uh, before that it belonged to someone even if it's just a button on a jacket it it belonged to someone who was it and depending on where it was and what kind of object it is you can actually pretty much often work out uh, you can build a profile of this person and that's rather a magical connection as well because you immediately have this this connection with a person
2: in the past yeah i mean you talk about a setting off point for the imagination i think that's a lovely idea is that is that you can weave a story around You, you find a button and you and and you you get an idea of how old it is. At some stage, you work out that it might be a 14th century or a 17th century or something. And then you think, well, what was that person doing in that in that in this place? Uh, what's the connection? And if it's Roman, something is it between two points and mm. uh, two Roman towns? And and you you create a whole a whole you know use your imagination to create a whole story there. I mean, Absolutely, it, it's fantastic. I mean, some of the stories.
1: Are kind of predictable, so you might find an old button that you can—that's a pretty workaday uh, object that you can pretty much be sure once was once on the tunic of a farm labourer. So you find in a field, which is interesting because uh, you have an immediate connection with a sense of that person and what they were doing uh, at that time for that for for their job and so on. But sometimes you can find an object that has much more depth and mystery than that that actually challenges you to kind of work out why it was there and that happened to me a couple of times and that's really exciting I think
0: that really comes across in the book I have to say so for anybody listening who's even half thinking about it I just found it such a good read um, and I, you know, we we talk about it here, and it's got lots of other things going. But I just want to say that really early, because like most women, I would think, I looked at that and thought, oh yeah, not mm. for me, love. Mm. Um, but I just absolutely kicked off and carried on reading. Wonderful.
2: Well, I was going to say something about the detecting as mindfulness. I love mm. I love that idea that mm. that actually you go into a sort of tr- almost trance like mode, and you're just kind of. Sweeping around, and uh, you forget everything. That, In fact, or, you have to. Well, all don't yeah, you, yeah but you've got well, You sort, of, sort of got to concentrate on the sound, obviously. Mm-hmm. But but you but you can just throw everything else away, and it, I like that idea.
1: Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, <laughs> again, that was one of the first things that detectorist um, said to me that it has a certain meditative quality, which it does literally, physically, because you're swinging this thing, so you get into a kind of rhythm, and after a while, you don't have to think about what you're doing physically your body just has the muscle memory so you're doing it and it la- leaves your mind to float off in various directions if you wish it to you can either focus on what you may be about to find which i do sometimes or you might just start thinking about something completely different but it has a lot a lot of people told me that they have got into metal detecting as a means of um, kind of helping their mental health problems uh, so many i was surprised by the number of people who told me that
2: another thing about uh, sort of thought that came up and comes up in the book is we're talking about connecting with your history it's also connecting with uh, the land of belonging and, and and place and where you who you are and where you where, where you come from and you say you have this thing where you're you're both a northerner and a southerner and uh, mm-hmm. you, you don't have a necessarily a, a place and th- this enables you to kind of dig down and become a sort of I don't know an English person maybe I don't know because you're kind of connecting with the actually connecting with the land.
1: Yeah this was something that I hadn't bargained for I didn't realise that this would be part of the process but um, because of lockdown I suddenly couldn't travel as I just said Uh, I'd spent the last 30 years travelling all over the world not necessarily enjoying it incidentally getting a bit kind of sick of it towards the end uh, I'd say towards the end I mean before, before having to Having to stay at home because of lockdown. So, um, lockdown gave me the opportunity to stand still and take stock of my life uh, and my place in the world. And my sense of the world narrowed necessarily to this kind of small um, cottage and garden in Hampshire. And it's the first time I'd been, I'd spent such, uh, so many days and weeks in this one particular place. And it made me reassess who I was, where I came from. It made me look back at my life because I'm sort of what you might call late middle-aged maybe now and wonder about actually my place in the world. I've been so busy travelling the world and writing about other people's places in the world, in their parts of the world. What about me, in my part of the world? You know, where did I fit in? And uh, metal detecting gave me a kind of avenue into this uh, this way of thinking. And it, it, I, I started to to wonder about where, indeed, I did belong. And that was a really interesting process, which is which is ongoing, I, I should say.
0: I love that. One of my favourite quotes, I think, is each new field is hope, each old one reality. <laughs> I just love that.
1: Well, that's the thing. The other thing about method detecting is it actually teaches you... It's a kind of lesson in life, in a way... Um, I found I was actually as I explained in the book i was when I started out I was actually rather childish and impatient because I wanted to find really good amazing things straight away and If I went out with the experienced detectorists who'd found marvelous things over the, over the years, they showed me these finds, I felt kind of jealous, and I thought that um in order I needed to match them in order to match them, I had to find amazing things, and I got uh rather impatient with myself and and jealous of others um and i realized that was part of the process that i should just relax into this hobby and realize that it's it's about life you know things don't don't just land in your lap um you have to wait for them and sometimes they don't come long at all and you have to be philosophical so it taught me to be actually a a calmer person I think funnily enough
0: I mean you've said how it arose because of lockdown obviously Mm. that's the logical bit but can you see a real difference in yourself from now through the detectorist route
1: I think I can actually Uh, for example uh, now I'm back into the swing of writing about other things travel writing among others feature writing travel writing I think my focus has shifted slightly because I used to spend much more time abroad than I am now. I am doing some foreign stories, but I'm actually much more interested in staying within the UK and exploring bits of the UK that uh, I've neglected. I mean, as I explain in the book, actually, I'd been to, you know, such and such a museum in Norway, the Sardine Canning Museum in Norway, but I'd never been to the Curtis Museum in Alton, for example. (laughs) Which is a really, really interesting museum, the Curtis Museum, and I felt a bit ashamed when I realised that. And I want, I want to sort of refocus myself, I think, now and do more uh, home-based stories to carry on that ex- exploration of
2: Englishness and where I fit into it. Well, I, I was, I mean, this was one interesting thing I think in the book again about the difference between uh, field walking or mud larking or. Mud-larking or Look at things yes. on the surface yes. and things underground, and how mm. there's a division in the people that do both. Mm. So, yeah, So, what is the difference between between? Well, clearly, what there is there is a difference, but different people doing it as well. That was what one of the things that comes comes out of the book.
1: Yeah, the, there is a kind of schism in, between metal detectors and archaeologists, uh, which is partly to do, I think, with the English class systems. A lot of intellectual snobbery there. So, the archaeologists don't like the fact that detectorists. Uh, making all these extraordinary archaeological finds. And for the archaeologists' part, on their part, they believe that detectorists don't always detect responsibly and report their finds responsibly. So, And I can see... I mean, in the book, I try to reflect both sides and be even-handed on that. But there is a difference in attitude towards the way that you search for the past. Now, mudlarks on the Thames in London, mostly... Um, I mean that that's licensed. So if you, if you want to use a metal detector on the Thames for sure, you need a license anyway. But there are people who Laura Maitland, for example, who wrote that, that excellent book Mudlarking, does not use a metal detector. Doesn't really. It's not really in favour of people who use metal detectors. She thinks it's too intrusive and maybe a bit macho and um, a bit a, a bit too inquisitive, acquisitive. Uh, she prefers to search just on the surface with her eyes which is known as eyes only she kind of implies that if you're metal detecting and you're, you've got your spade there you're digging into the earth and you're being quite aggressive about it whereas if you do if, if you do um s- search on the surface with your eyes it's a much it's a much gentler um way of doing it and it's maybe more women favor that than men it's it's difficult on that but of course people do eyes only on fields as well as on the thames foreshore and that's an art in itself because you have to tune your eyes you have to have a good eyesight and you have to um kind of train your eyes to pick up various shapes and so on which i'm not very good at actually but that i mean i was funny enough i was on the thames yesterday and I did a bit of mudlarking down by battersea bridge and found some pottery and that's but i mean that was nice.
0: We've talked about the story making and so on. Is that why the Nighthawks... And I hate that name because it does completely glorify them, I think. But um, let we all know what they are, thanks to um, the Detectors programme. Um, Nighthawks really interrupt that so- story, don't they? They sort of... It's not just about theft. It's not just pinching an artefact. It's interrupting that whole concocted world, really.
1: Well, the subject of nighthawking, looting by metal detectorists is a really complicated and sensitive one. Um, I, probably the extent to which it goes on is exaggerated but it does go on. I think the whole point about it is that it gives, it gives metal detectorists a bad name. Um, it tars them all with the same brush. When in fact, it's, it's a tiny, tiny minority who do it. The whole point of metal detecting is that it should be part of the process of archaeological research and there's a scheme that's run by the british museum called the portable antiquity scheme that enables that to be to to happen and in that sense if detectors behave responsibly and the vast majority do uh the um the contribution to archaeology by detectors is immense but the the looters the, the the nighthawks um really ruin all that and uh Give us all the bad name that we don't deserve.
0: So while we've got you, I really want to read The Wrong Hands. Oh. So could you say a little bit about it? Because if you like young adult fiction, this I think would be one for everybody.
1: Gosh, it's a long time since I wrote that. Um, The Wrong Hands. Well it's about <laughs> it's about a boy who's who's born with miraculous hands but is is that enabled him to do all sorts of amazing things, but He's kind of taught from a very young age that these hands, far from being miraculous, are something to be ashamed of. And the book is about him understand coming to understand through um, friends he meets who point him in various directions. It's about him coming to understand that these hands, are, that, which he's taught to regard as an affliction, are in fact something to be very proud of and that's something that makes him unique and... In fact, rather marvellous.
0: Can you remember, Nigel, what was your motivation (laughs) for writing
1: Not really. Um, I think think it was really about uh, trying... Because it's quite
0: political. The reason why I'm saying it is that actually, when I read about it, Mm. I thought, gosh, that is half a metaphor for what's going on now. Yes, and it was
1: written ten or more years ago as well, wasn't it? Um, Yes. I mean, it's also quite... Well, there's also a tabloid newspaper involved who tried to expose him. Um, and he's, I think he's suspected of murder, and there's a lot of manipulation and cynicism on the part of adults. (laughs) On the part of adults, and he's this child who kind of saves the day. Um, Yeah,
0: right. I've I've kind of intervened the wrong hands because I was excited about it, and I was thinking about a political situation.
2: Well, thank you very much for coming in today, Nigel. It's really interesting to hear about the book, and I really would recommend anyone who, who wants to know about a whole new world uh, to read it, yes. and maybe maybe then to become a detectorist, I don't know. But uh, well, it's, it's
0: inspiring.
2: Yes, great, thank you. So, thank you very much. A oh, pleasure, pleasure. Great, no, lovely to thank to
1: for inviting me. It was really nice.
0: So, Tim, we've got Christmas looming. Much as I hate to say it, I sound like Scrooge, um, but you know what's. What's coming?
2: Well, uh, I've just picked out a few titles that that I think um, varied, very varied group of titles, which I think people might be interested in. The first one is the Satsuma Complex Ooh. by Bob Mortimer. Mm. Now he's oh, uh, he did a, he did a sort of biography last year, a couple of years ago, which was very very popular, and obviously he can write this guy as well as being very funny. So his this publisher is the obviously Vic Reeves,
0: him, Bob Mortimer. And that's right. Yes. Gone fishing. Bob that's right.
2: It's is a funny novel. I'm looking forward to reading it. Actually, I haven't haven't had a chance to yet. And there aren't that many funny novels out there. So the story is that is that in this this book, this this guy called Gary goes out for a pint after work with his workmate Brendan. Um, he he had the Brendan has to leave early, and anyway, he meets this nice girl who who then disappears as well without saying goodbye. Then Brendan goes missing, <laughs> and Gary starts searching for answers. So that's that's oh. basically how it how it how it's set up um and along the way obviously there's, there's adventures so uh that's the satsuma complex which is a great name for a title of a book i predispose where it came from with that um the other book i wanted to mention was was alan rickman's diaries called oh, yes. madly deeply um yeah i'm sure some of you will remember the film he did truly madly deeply with, with Juliet stevenson back in the Early nineties, I think it was. Must been. one of those devastating films where you need at least a, a three packs of, <laughs> of Kleenex when you. Uh, and by the end of it, there's sort kind of the, the snivelling around the cinema Remember when I, when it came out. The diaries come from a little bit later, ninety three to to two thousand and sixteen, when he died. Um, and of course, he was one of the one of the best known British actors out there, and uh, particularly for his portrayal of, of Professor Severus Snape in the Harry Potter films. Depending
0: um, on your
2: age, Well, exactly. Uh, but die hard for others will, will remember for that.
0: Die hard for us. Or Obadiah uh, Slope in the Barchester Chronicles there was you like go. the finest thing I've ever seen.
2: Slightly more upmarket. May you both up live up forever. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, other one is, is the Lost Rainforests of Britain by Guy Shrubsole. Oh, um, now this is about the, the fact that that about a, th- a fifth of Great Britain was temperate rainforest. Um, and now, actually, there's very little of it left. Um, but there's still some, there is still some, and, and particularly quite a bit more in Scotland and the Western Highlands, um, some in the Lake District, and also in the far the far tips of uh, bits of Devon and Cornwall. Um, and it's not really, it's, although it has got some pictures, it's not a picture book. It's really about about what's happening to our rainforests, what what they were like, uh, what they are like now, and um, and how we can protect them because they're you know a lot of them are, are, are dying because of overgrazing by by sheep and deer and things so uh if we want to have those rainforests then we need to we need to look after them so that that was a that was a an interesting concept
0: that sounds fascinating i had no idea
2: well there you go um and the last book i was going to mention is a book called wild light it looks beautiful well it is beautiful it's by it's by angela harding the, the printmaker and it's 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 looking at it's a it's a gorgeous book with, with with hundreds of her her prints in it, but it's it's the idea that, that uh, the play of light and dark is, is what she does in her in her lithographs and her print making. So it
0: looks as if there's lots of birds involved. Yeah,
2: lots of birds. She's very into her birds. She also does lots of book jackets as well. Yes, um, she does. So That's how the, I know her best. The style of her her writing. So um, beautifully graphic. But it is it is lovely. So that's some just a, a hint of some of the lovely books. But that's so sumptuous; it
0: must be quite expensive, isn't it? Uh,
2: that's a good question. I think it, it is twenty five pounds. Right, so it's still,
0: yes. you know everything catches up, doesn't it? I mean, an ordinary hardback now is pretty expensive. Yes,
2: um, I'm afraid books are no; they're not as bad as 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 groceries. They're not no. in terms of in terms of inflation. They have they have been creeping up, but there's nothing like as bad as. As you, you know, you, you pack a butter or something, which is, seems to have gone gone oh, crazy in the last year. Um, so there is that. I think partly it's the case that when they produce books, they have a very long lead time, so they tend to buy the paper, you know, six months or nine months ahead of time. So I'm, I fear that the prices will start to go up in the next in the next year. I think quite they a lot.
0: will. I think a lot of the quality of hardbacks because that's my my sort of. Addiction, really, is to buy held back rather than paperback by choice. Um, and I think the quality, the colour of the paper and the quality of the paper isn't what it was.
2: Yeah. Although, having said that, it's interesting that uh, there was a period in the, you know, maybe ten years ago where, where everything did go, but the paper went really, the quality went really down. and the, But since then, uh, people have actually decided they really like good quality yeah. things if you're going to spend a bit of money on something, you want it to a look nice, but also feel nice and and you know, be good quality. So uh, it's it's coming back. I think Susie, tell us about your what you have got on your backlisted choice this month.
0: Well, Tim, I know that your book group was talking about small things like these by Claire Keegan. How did that go?
2: That was very interesting. We had a we had a a, a really good discussion um, because it's such a short book. You're really able to dig into it. I think that's one of the things about uh, about uh discussing a novella or something. It, it it means especially when it's written so beautifully like that like Claire Keegan writes, uh and with subtlety and uh economy. Uh great she's got a great economy with words. You you have to let the let the words sink in and you understand what what she's saying and it's not in it not it doesn't tell you. You have to kind of um like all the best all the best fiction, she she shows you she doesn't tell you and um i think she's a she's a she's a real star mm. um interestingly enough uh, i i note that that book small things like these has now just become the sunday times bestseller of the week uh, last it? week uh, just because it's just out in paperback and that's that's a, an extraordinary for such a such a sort of literary writer
0: I'm unsurprised. I think it is perfect for book groups, as you know ours did it as well, for all those reasons. It is so immersive. Um, And she said herself, although this is talking about Foster, which is my backlisted choice, also by Claire Keegan, I think this also applies to small things like these. Um, It's essentially about trusting in the reader's intelligence rather than labouring a point. To work on the level of suggestion is what I aim for in all my writing, so it it's exactly as you've said and um, and it has the quality for me of almost almost poetry, which isn't that it 's grandiose in any way that it that every word has to work yeah. and work for itself and and work for the meaning and because Foster is even shorter it's really a long short story rather than a novella um You could read it. I read it in just over an hour, even with dog interruptions. So, um, you know, I really commend it. So Foster by Claire Keegan has a feeling for me of what Maisie knew by Henry James, in that you have a child protagonist um, and everything we see is through the eyes of a child. So although we as adult readers get an, an impression only... Uh, we have a greater understanding of what these impressions may mean than the child herself and and understand her very well So the long short story Foster was first published in September 2010, but had previously won the Davy Burns Irish Writing Award in 2009. Judge Richard Ford, the American writer, wrote in his winning citation of Keegan's thrilling instinct for the right words and her patient attention to life's vast consequence and finality. And when I was... I knew she'd won awards for this, but when I googled it to find out what exactly she'd won what kept coming up was, how does it end? What's the ending of it? How do you understand this? And I thought, it's really interesting how I think if you gathered 10 people in this room, you would have 10 versions of what we all think A, happened in the, in the short story, let's call it a short story, and then what happens at the end. And I think I have rather a, a darker view than a lot of people about what may or may not have been happening in her home situation. And so the clue in the title is that she has been taken off to very distant relatives of her mother because the mother's about to have her sixth babies, a lot of babies anyway. I mean, its yeah. I'm not sure they even mention a number. There's just this feeling, and it's certainly at least one too many. Um, and she the the child has an unloving at le, at the very least an unloving relationship with her real father and and yet has a very touching relationship with the family that she goes to and I'm not going to say any more about that I really heartily commend it to anybody listening it's Well, I think it's one of the most splendid things. I actually prefer it to small things like these. Um, I, I find it more subtle and I like having to interpret things, whereas I found... There's lots to talk about with small things like this, but I wasn't really in any difficulty puzzling out what was happening and so on. Whereas with this, it is subtle. With a touch of the Gothic, which really suits me. I love it when things go a little or potentially have gone a little darker. But the extract I'm going to read is, won't be a spoiler at all. It's an example how something that's apparently utterly banal... Um, is made wonderful and and yet relatable. Um, and certainly this is for any woman listening because I think we all completely um, can relate to this. So it's the beginning of chapter two. The child has actually, and even then we're not absolutely told it, but the child has wet the bed, um, which is what makes me wonder what has been going on at home for a, a, a young girl child to have this happening uh, and obviously has happened quite a lot at home and there are various interpretations of that but anyway this is this is the beginning of chapter two beyond the kitchen carpeted steps led to an open room there's a big double bed with a candle wick spread and lamps at either side this i know is where they sleep and i'm glad for some reason that they sleep together the woman takes me through to a bathroom plugs the drain and turns the taps on full the bath fills and the white room changes so that a type of blindness comes over us. We can see everything, and yet we can't see. Hands up, she says, and takes my dress off. She tests the water, and I step in, trusting her. But this water is too hot. Get in, she says. It's too hot. You'll get used to it. I put one foot through the steam and feel again the same hot scold. I keep my foot in the water and then when I think I can't stand it any longer my thinking changes and I can. This water is deeper and hotter than any I have ever bathed in. Our mother bathes us in what little she can and sometimes makes us share. After a while I lie back and through the steam watch the woman as she scrubs my feet. The dirt under my nails she prizes out with tweezers. She squeezes shampoo from a plastic bottle, lathers my hair and rinses the lather off. Then she makes me stand and soaps me all over with a cloth. Her hands are like my mother's hands, but there is something else in them too, something I have never felt before and have no name for. I feel at such a loss for words, but this is a new place and new words are needed. I really, really, harshly recommend this, and I'm in fact going to go on and read everything she has ever written because I think she's wonderful. Which
2: isn't much. She's not a. She's not a that that prolific. No. There's a collection of stories called Antarctica.
0: There's two collections of short stories, yeah. so I'll, I'll read both of those. Uh,
2: thank you very much, Susie. Um, if you want to find out, find listen to any any of these uh, talking books programs, you can find them. Through Spotify or any of your usual sources, you get podcasts.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Tim. It's been a good one.
1: You have been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly, and produced by John Wellsman.
2: only more than a dozen local businesses come together from photography to fresh baking the petersfield small business fair is a great way to meet loads of small traders under one roof with special offers free tasters and face painting for the kids it's something to shout about
0: the petersfield small business fair
2: saturday the 3rd of december at winton house opposite MS.